thumbs up from everyone. Welcome to Nothing to Fear, a weekly horror movie podcast hosted by three Canadians. My name is Billy Schultz, I'm your host, and I'm joined every week by my two very good friends, Luke Mason and Alex Wan. How are you doing, Luke? Doing well, thanks. Nice day, pretty warm out, lots of snow, but Calgary doesn't have plows, so still doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> Not for the side streets, anyway. No. <laughs> and uh, and also Alex is here as well. How are you, Alex? I'm doing great, eh? Eh? I get it. I get it. Because we're Canadians. That's how we talk, right? Because we're Canadians. Oh, you know. (laughs) Let's get to the Fright Night, you know. (laughs) We made that joke. (laughs) We made these exact same jokes in the Get Out episode. This is, we're already rehashing old, old ground. Yeah, that was last year, though. What's the the point of saying something if it isn't worth saying twice? Or five times. What's the point of saying something if it isn't worth saying twice? (laughs) Or five times. What's the point of saying something if it isn't worth saying three times? Oh, good. This is the type of content you tune into every single week. My friends, listeners, hello. Mm. We are smack dab in the middle of our birthday week, our January horror movies week. And we're talking about Fright Night tonight. Month? What is it? Month? Week? Whatever. Time time doesn't exist. There's no such thing as time. But... Today, we're talking about 1985's Fright Night, directed by Tom Holland, which I found amazing because he wasn't in Spider-Man until like 30 years later almost. But, but <laughs> what, do you, what do either of you know about Fright Night, the movie we're watching today? I don't know anything about it. Like, actually. Not yeah, one thing? I don't know anything. Never heard of it. Not one thing. It sounds, Fright Night sounds like like a really cool Halloween themed drag show. Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah. But like that's that's really all my brain goes to. Okay. I'm sure there have been Fright Night themed drag shows and drag shows called Fright Night. Like Yeah, that's probably a pretty safe bet. I don't think we'll see much of that. There's at least one in history, right? I'm sure. There's and if not, if we've said it, by the time this comes out, there will be one planned for October twenty twenty one. But Luke, what do you know about Fright Night? A Fright at the Roxbury. Night of the uh, Fright of the Living Dead. Good fright, good luck. Let's see what else. Oh, how about this one? Freaky, freaky Fright Day. Oh, good one. Or this one. Do you remember that great Heath Ledger film, A Fright's Tale? <laughs> yes. The frights move on the chessboard. Uh, oh, a frightmare on Elm Street. Duh. <laughs> We've closed our own time loop. We did it. The only thing I know about this film is that Billy said it's about vampires. I think it's maybe about vampires. That is what I think. That's what I know about it. Okay. But well, it made me want to ask both of you if this hmm. is true. What's the best nightmare? Uh, sorry. What's the best vampire movie you've ever seen? I feel like there's an easy answer to this, but I want to know what you two think. Inter- interview with a vampire? Is that is that the answer? Well, it's a answer. I don't know if it's the right answer. I think the right answer is what we do in the shadows. I think that is the right answer to the best vampire. That is correct. That is correct. (laughs) Oh, you said you said movie. I thought you. I didn't know documentaries counted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Film. Put on film. Film. Okay. Okay. Film. It's what we do in the shadows, or it is the blade. 
the Blade movies. I like the Blade movies. Wesley Snipes mm. is the Daywalker. Those are some good fun, good fun nonsense. Yes. But I don't even know if this one is actually about vampires. Like, we could be very wrong, and we'll come back after the trailer and be like, huh, so that movie about werewolves was really interesting. Hmm. I guess we were all wrong in the first half. Are you a Lycan or a Lycant? Hmm. That's a very good motivational. I, I imagine that being a motivational phrase for young werewolves. Are you a Lycanthrope or a Lycanthrope? <laughs> hey, I just wanted to loop in you into the message. <laughs> good one. Good one. Actually, interesting. Gary Oldman plays Sirius Black in The Prisoner of Azkaban, and he also plays, if I'm not mistaken, Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is yes. the enemy of the werewolf. However, in Prisoner of Azkaban, they're friends, thus showing all things can be overcome. Yeah, but in Twilight, didn't the werewolves fight the vampires? Yeah, but then weren't they not fighting? Hmm. I remember when I was at Luke's once, and Breaking Dawn Part 1 was on TV, so oh, we yes. watched that for about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and our, our friend Jacqueline knew all the words. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me very much. I've never seen the Twilight movies, and I don't know if I will remedy mm. that lapse in my knowledge ever. <laughs> well, there are lots of vampires in those movies. So. I feel like you'd have yeah. to read the books, you know, just to get the full flavor. So what, what we can rephrase it as is what we do in the shadows is the best vampire movie you've seen so far. Yes. That's true. I've yes. seen so exactly. far. Yeah. <laughs> your your question, Luke, about what's the best vampire movie, it was a line of dialogue on a podcast I was a guest on uh, around the Halloween time last year called We Happen to Be Trans, a pop culture podcast. And my episode was all about Dracula and vampires for Halloween. And they asked the mm. same question. And I think I gave the same answer, but uh, you should check that podcast out. It's a good one. Mm. But anyway, should we stop farting so, around? Oh, no, go ahead. It's... Does Dr. Acula specialize in hemoglobin? Alex, you're the scrubs expert. What do you think? <laughs> Dr. Acula, take out the period, squish it together, then you get Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Roll credits. Roll credits. Thank you for saying so. Thank you for saying so. Okay. All right. I'm putting a stop to this right now. We are going to go and watch this movie, whatever it may be about. We are going to come in and spoil it after the trailer because there is almost no way we spoiled anything before the trailer. But this is your warning to watch the movie before we talk about it. If you wish to remain unspoiled. And as always, if you are worried about being triggered by anything, check out the website, doesthedogdie.com. We are not sponsored by them, but they provide a lot of good information about movies and when there are potential, potentially triggering things that we might talk about in the show. Alex is raising his hand. What have you got? This is your movie, right? This one is my movie. Yes. 1985, the year I was born. Okay. So... Mm. I hope it's good, but it will probably be better than Leprechaun, at least. <laughs> well, hey, you, you don't know that. If you don't would... insult 93 like that. <laughs> I mean, if you don't count Back to the Future or Breakfast Club, this is probably the best movie from 1985, hey? Yeah, probably. I mean, 93 was great for mm. movies, Alex. You got Jurassic Park. I think Pulp Fiction was in 93. I'm pretty sure The Sandlot came out in 93, and that was a great movie. That was a great movie. You're killing me, Smalls. You're, You're killing, killing me. me, Luke. But 
let's go back to the past of 1985 and watch Fright Night. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. This could be the night of your life. Alex, take it away when you are ready. All right, Fright Night is a 1985 American horror film written and directed by Tom Holland. The film follows young Charlie Brewster, who discovers that his next-door neighbor, Jerry Dandridge, is a vampire. When no one believes him, Charlie decides to get Peter Vincent, a TV show host who acted in films as a vampire hunter, to stop Jerry's killing spree. Yep. Okay. So, before we dive into it, I have a question to ask both of you. And my question is, do we think that this movie was meant to be a serious take on the vampire lore or more of a parody? Because that will really change how I feel about this movie, I think. I think because he gets, because of the whole Peter Vincent being a TV show host that hunts vampires and it's like he's an actor and when he actually recruits him, he's not actually a vampire hunter. But then when he finally sees that it's a real vampire, he's like believes in vampires. I think it's supposed to be kind of funny that way. And so in that sense, it doesn't take itself seriously. So I think it's kind of, it's, I felt it was a kind of parody of the monster genre. So yeah, I don't think it was supposed to be completely serious movie. What about you, Luke? I think that Alex is probably right. And there's enough like 80s campy schlock to make it seem kind of of that Nightmare on Elm Street feel. But I think the problem is you can't quite tell. It's not (laughs) self-evident. Ergo, your question, Billy. And that probably makes it (laughs) suffer either way. If you can't tell for sure, if it's a serious movie or a parody, then it means it didn't connect as either. And so it's in this kind of like no person's <laughs> land in the middle of, I don't know. I, I, I would probably tend to agree with Alex that I think it is more of a campy schlocky parody on the genre. But then there's also too many, like that last act just was too long to be funny. So, so I don't know. I think I think there were enough parts of it that made it seem like it was kind of trying to be serious. 
So it was like almost like, oh, here's a campy, funny vampire movie. But here's well, it, we'll see if they think it's serious, and then if they get some critical praise to it, we'll say that was our intention all along. But if people just laugh, yeah, that's just what we'll say we were doing too. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I would put it. Right. So they tried to have it both ways, and neither, yeah, 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 neither way worked. I, I think I. I think I agree, and I think for for the purposes of like the analysis of this movie and of our episode, is that I have to put myself in the camp of they knew they were making a parody of B movies of '60s horror movies of like you know daytime TV horror night, like you know your Peter Vincent's Fright Nights, for example. Like they were, I think del- they were deliberately aiming for that. And along the way, they yeah they were like, well let's try to put in let's try to put in a little bit of a little bit more. And then that last act, once they got into the club, like the dance club scene, every scene after that could have been half as long, and it would have been fine. Yeah, because it just keeps on going. (laughs) Cheesy, cheesy, silly movies don't need to be that long. No, and it was only like 110 minutes long or something. So it could have easily been the tight 70 minutes and it would have been just fine. But let's talk about it. Let's talk about our first impressions. Luke, what are your first impressions? I think for me, uh, this movie really benefits from it coming on the heels of Leprechaun. Because in comparison, this is Citizen Kane. But (laughs) I think I've brought this up before. And there's probably a word for it in storytelling, but I just didn't feel the imperative of this movie. I didn't feel what part of it was supposed to make me want to watch it because it wasn't quite silly enough to be silly and it wasn't quite serious enough to be serious and it wasn't quite interesting enough to be interesting and it wasn't quite funny enough to be a comedy. So I didn't ever feel the hook of why I was supposed to care. But by that token, it also wasn't a bad movie. Like it wasn't a it wasn't a, just a terrible mm. terrible experience. So, I don't know. I I feel similar to like when we watched Ring where at the end I was like, "Yeah, that was a totally fine movie." But it wasn't a great movie. And other than like the 80s silliness of it, I don't really know if I'll remember anything from this film. It's very very <laughs> silly and not that memorable. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. It was very goofy. It was very... I think there's something in this movie that can be like academically looked at based on previous vampire lore and mythology to that point. If you look at the Hammer Horror stuff from the 60s, or you look at even the stuff, the Dracula movie from the 30s with Bela Lugosi, or even the original text itself, there's like enough pieces from the source material from the original Dracula legend that they tried to spin in a way that reminded me of do you do either of you remember the there's like a bunch of kids books in the early 90s that were always something like whoa my teacher is an alien or there's a Dracula (laughs) upstairs or like some of those like sort of silly kids books it seemed like goosebumps yeah it was like a goosebumps it seemed very much like somebody was in a pitch meeting in Hollywood and was like, all right, here's the pitch. What if Dracula, but he's in suburbia and it's from his neighbor's point of view? And it was just like, 
it just had that sort of vibe that felt kind of interesting to think about but i don't know if it worked super well on screen but that was my original takeaway and so i spent the whole movie trying to be like okay this is from the source material and this is this is a reference to that and sort of putting all the little pieces of red string and push pins into that was kind of fun while i was watching it but it was also kind of a hot mess but what did you think alex i think i'm gonna be a little bit on the more generous side from comparing to it to you two I actually kind of like quite like this movie. There was like a lot oh, of yeah? things that made me think about other things that I liked. And when I thought like about how it referenced those things, I, I kind of, it made me enjoy Fright Night a lot more than I think I would have. So I do like my biggest critique, which I do agree with is that this, well, this was too long. There were some scenes, especially at the end where it dragged out, like especially the basement, the ba- like the final fight in the basement that dragged on way too long. <laughs> Outside of like the time criticism, uh, I I liked a lot of this. Um, I thought the characters were dumb, but they're like interesting to me. A really good villain or antagonist with Jerry, the guy yeah. who played Jerry. What's his name? Chris Sarandon. Yeah, did a great job. He he was like the sexy vampire next door who seduces people and is, like super good looking and like is able to charm mm-hmm. his way through anything. But his character really reminded me of name is slipping my mind who played batman the newest batman not the newest Mike- batman not bruce michael keaton or no not michael christian bale <laughs> christian bale Val kilmer christian bale um, George Clooney? yeah yeah so oh. in american psycho it reminded me a lot of his character in american psycho oh yeah of how he was able to present patrick himself bateman. both ways and i really liked american psycho patrick bateman that's right yeah so like how it's like one like he was super charming when he was meeting when he got invited into the house with mom right and then like for the polar opposite he's like this super psychotic killing vampire that's like really evil and messed up and that like his character just made me think of american psycho and patrick bateman and i really like that the absolute ridiculousness of evil ed his character (laughs) reminded me of biff from back to the future yeah and just like how dumb these bullies are written as or these mean kids are written as you know, the whole club dancing scene was super weird, but it, it, it made me think about the dancing scene in Pulp Fiction, and I love that. And, of course, like, the whole Peter Vincent thing is obviously, like, it's it's inspired heavily, I'm, I'm sure, by Vincent Price. And, you know, when yeah. I was in school and I t- took, like, film studies as as an option class, like, we, we spent a, quite, a, quite a few weeks doing B-movies, and we watched a lot of B-movies, like, old black and white B-movies, especially monster movies. And there's this one movie called The Devil Bat, which was so bad, but it's just so memorable in my head <laughs> about this giant bat that terrorizes this house. And it like the giant bat that Jerry transforms into reminded me of that. So like there's all these little things in this movie that like referenced happy points of memory in my brain. And I think it's those things that as weird as this movie was, at certain parts it was super creepy. It was kind of jumbled mess of different ideas that I thought worked really well together. And on top of that, I think, like, this had some of the best music in any of, of the movies we've ever watched. I really like the, the theme song, or, like, the, the sexy vampire theme that was playing in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was weird. This was a weird movie. If I, if I didn't have any of those things in my mind, like, if I've never watched American Psycho or Pulp Fiction or The Devil Bat or I didn't know who Vincent Price was and never watched Back to the Future, I think I would have hated this movie. But because it, it, it made me think about all these things that I love, I think I, I think I like this movie. 
and the, that the, yeah the, that's my first impression of it nice yeah and and to clarify this movie had a lot of things that were really weird and really strange but i also kind of loved it like i kind of loved just how wonky and strange it was and how very of the 80s it was and speaking of the guy who played the vampire chris sarandon do either of you know what else he was in that was pretty big or that i guess maybe wasn't big when it came out but it's kind of attained super cult status now well am i cheating if i looked at his wikipedia before we started recording (laughs) you you probably are but uh (laughs) yeah should i say it (laughs) you can say it you can say it all right so he voiced jack skellington in nightmare before christmas and he was prince humperdinck in princess bride Yes, yes. And so once I figured out that he was Prince Humperdinck in Princess Bride, I it immediately clicked into place because he also plays such a, just such an arch and like really broad, sneery, villainous character. And just to see him do that with, you know, basically Dracula. Like, let's be honest, he was he was a Dracula this whole time. He wasn't like some other vampire. He was he was Count Dracula, but in the suburbs. Just to see that performance come into the vampire realm was was wonderful. And yeah, he was very, very sneery and very sultry. And just as, you know, Dracula's always been like one of the horniest characters on film. Like he is just always really seductive and really intense. And just I think that actors that get to play a Dracula role really have a chance to You'll pardon the pun, I'm sure, but they get a chance to sink their teeth into it and really give it give it a good go- going over. <laughs> Luke, you're looking thoughtful. What's on your mind? Yeah, I mean, this is it's interesting because in a lot of psychology I've read and psychologists I've heard talk, this is kind of like a major archetype of the uh, of the of a common female sexual fantasy is the mysterious vampire-like or strong passionate wild man who can present to you a different world or something like that it's kind of like the motif of beauty and the beast or in real life it'd be like why do women like the bad boys kind of thing like (laughs) someone that is from the wrong side of the tracks but i think what's so interesting about the dracula lore too is that he's dracula or the vampire or the sexy vampire he's from he's he's a bad guy <laughs> he's a bad boy but he's so charming and debonair and mm-hmm. you definitely get you get like this is a more literary reference but you get kind of like the darcy vibes from pride and prejudice kind of thing in the in the vampire feel and so again i'm kind of talking out of my depth here <laughs> and my knowledge because I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, deep laden sexual fantasies, but I, I've heard they're like inside jokes. I can't wait to be a part of one one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, look, like the beginning of the movie, we see these two super attractive women at his house. Now, they're, I guess one of them was a prostitute, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's supposed to evoke that in us, the audience, right? Yeah, there's always some like allure of the tall, dark, and handsome, mysterious stranger. And to to your point, I know that like, you know, psychology textbooks talk about like the common fantasies, but there's like something, you know, sexy and mysterious about the unknown for for anybody. 
And yeah, I like that. I like it in other performances of Dracula. He's he's played more as like sort of hyper sexual. Like he will flirt with anybody. He will kind of yeah 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 be very sens- sensuous with with anybody, regardless of of gender or, or or who they are. They're just like you know what they want is not a sexual relationship, but like to to prey on them. And so they they kind of all play play into that, but. Yeah, it's I, like thinking about it back. Even though we finished watching it like less than twenty minutes ago, it feels kind of like I'm trying to remember a dream. Like some of the stuff that happens in mm-hmm. this movie just is so weird and disjointed. And even though I took notes, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start with this movie. You want to run through the plot? Let's run through the plot. Yeah, we can run through the plot. So basically, we have our two main leads, which are Charlie and Amy. And they are a couple, and they are teenagers. I think they're supposed to be high school age. And they find out that, or or then he sees some weird stuff happening at his neighbor's house. And this is where it felt a little bit like, oh, what's the Hitchcock movie where he's watching them through the... Rear Window. Is it Rear Window? Yeah. Yeah. Secret Window is the Johnny Depp movie. I think you're thinking of the Shia LaBeouf classic flick, Disturbia. Which Rear Window is based on. Uh, Oh, yes, right. Of course, yes. Alfred Hitchcock went forward in time (laughs) to see the Shia LaBeouf movie and went, I got it. (laughs) Let's resurrect Jimmy Stewart. James? (laughs) James? Yeah, so the the whole part of him watching Mr. Dandridge, Jerry Dandridge, move in felt very much like Rear Window-y, where he's... He's obsessed with it. He can't stop looking through the binoculars to the to the absolute detriment of everything around him. Like his girlfriend is talking to him. He's not listening to her. His mom is asking him questions, not paying any attention. Like he's he's obsessed with this person next door. Yeah, he was about to have sex and he's just like, nope, got to look through the window into these binoculars. You know, they're carrying a coffin. Like, now, okay, yeah. clarification, though. What's... Very uncharacteristic, very uncharacteristic of a high school boy. Was he not seeing that guy? What What was he seeing in that scene? Was that the scene where he was, like, the woman was there that... He saw them carrying a coffin. Right. No, they were carrying a coffin. Okay, now that would be... putting it down okay, in the basement. To be fair to Charlie, that would be pretty weird, you know, to see your neighbors That'd carrying a coffin around their yard. That's right. It would be super weird. And he's looking out the window, but he also has the TV on because they... He just always watches these like pulpy horror movies in his room. And when he's talking about them carrying the coffin, it just so happens that on the screen, she is watching the, the movie, the, the movie play out where they're carrying a coffin across some moors. And she thinks that he's watching the movie and not paying attention to her, who she's like, fine, I'll, I'll sleep with you. It's been a year. I'll do it, Charlie. And then he's, he's busy somewhere else. And so she thinks he's watching the movie, even though in the shot, she could, Definitely see he's not looking at the TV. He's pointing directly outside the window with binoculars. Which is the kind of thing that would suggest to us, the audience, that this is a tongue-in-cheek film. Because they have, on the TV, like, we're we're watching a TV, essentially. And on the TV we're watching, there's another TV that the characters are watching. <laughs> and what's happening on the TV that the characters are watching, that we are watching is them getting this kind of like jokey, oh, you're just watching the TV, which is what we're doing. So (laughs) like, it's that kind of thing. You know, the Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Like it is the kind of thing that should be a tongue in cheek 
nod and wink to the audience that this is just a jokey parody movie, but it just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't feel like Nightmare on Elm Street enough to feel like it was totally mm. in sync with its own self-parody. So that's what this was confusing about. I'm not quite sure the total intention, even though if I had to bet money, it is on the parody version of things. Mm. I would bet money on that. Yeah. I think it's just like, it's yeah. so, it's, 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 at some points it's hard to tell, but it's so painfully obvious when you actually look at Peter Vincent's character that you like, mm-hmm. there's no way that it's not. Well, if you look at any of the characters, it's very quickly evident that this is, this is a parody because the acting is so broad and the dialogue is so stilted and so cheesy that you, I, at first it really bumped me. I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. They are acting so badly. They're acting just like everyone is being a, carbon copy archetype of you know like protagonist protagonist girlfriend mom who's too busy to notice anything weird kind of spazzy best friend slash bully slash classmate and they were all just playing it super super duper broad and again unlike leprechaun where it was really annoying eventually i kind of got into it i kind of got into it i kind of got into what ed was doing what the vampire was doing, even the vampire's assistant man, Billy Cole, his just like really weird, creepy staring, like it all kind of grew on me as the movie played out. But yeah, it was really strange at first. <laughs> There's not really much else to say there, but so he 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 sees Mr. Dandridge, you know, he's peeping on him through the bedroom window. He sees him with this this woman upstairs and throughout the movie to this point we've seen little bits and pieces of news reports and audio in the background being like oh a brutal murder the other day or uh you know this woman who was a sex worker is is been brutally murdered and had her head cut off and he is putting to putting together the pieces of there's a vampire living next door and he actually catches him in the act of about to about to bite Another woman who I guess we can also infer was a sex worker because this was before anybody had really met him. And Charlie sees the fangs. Charlie sees the big, long, gross fingernails. And the whole first act of the movie is basically him running around wondering why nobody believes him. And that part, I don't know. It just, that part I think was the the worst part of the movie for me where it was like just scene after scene of Charlie being like, he's a vampire and nobody believes me. And everyone being like, there's no such thing as vampires, Charlie. Stop bothering everyone. Or Ed going along with it and then goof, goofing around. But it made Charlie for me very unlikable as the movie rolled out. And then he continued to be unlikable all the way to the very end of the movie. I was like, I don't want him to be my main my main character. After a while, I was like, this movie is about Peter Vincent, and you can't change my mind. Just because of how obnoxious I found Charlie to be. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll just, I always have to say it whenever it happens, but there's just no subtlety in this movie. And there's no mystery either, really, <laughs> right? Like, we find out Dandridge is a vampire, like, what, 12 minutes into the movie? So, <laughs> he's the vampire, he's the bad guy, let's get the bad guy and then things happen right and you don't need a mystery really but i don't know i guess i just feel psychologically more attracted to mystery stories when there's like still a little bit of ambiguity of like who the real villain is or who's really behind everything or what's really going on and i guess we get that a little bit in the fact that that billy cole guy is also a vampire but that also Mm -hmm. makes sense because why would dandridge just keep this human around (laughs) 
So I don't know. <laughs> I guess it just, it makes me, when I feel like the movie isn't trying to hide anything from me, it kind of makes me pay a little bit less attention to it. <laughs> like I feel like I'm less liable to miss something when it doesn't feel like it's trying to hide anything. Right. So you you like finding out stuff of the movie at the same time as the characters. You don't like going into a movie knowing more than the people who have to figure it out because then you're just watching somebody come to the same answer you already know. Is that kind of Yeah. Like well, I mean, we brought up Rear Window before and I think Rear Window is one of the greatest movies ever made and one of the major reasons for it, I would say is that Jimmy Stewart's character, I can't remember the character's name right now, but like he's convinced that his neighbor, the guy across the way, is a murderer, right? But he kind of knows he's crazy for thinking that, or it's kind of weird. And big spoiler here for the movie Rear Window, but I think it came out in 54, so you've had enough time. (laughs) It turns out his neighbor is a murderer, but we don't find that out at the 12-minute mark, right? We find that out like with like seven or eight minutes left in the movie. So there's kind of like this tension, the whole film of like, is he or isn't he? And even if you really believe it or you really don't, you don't have confirmation until near the end of the film. And that does a lot, I think, for your psychological experience of the movie Rear Window in a way that if you had known he was for sure in 10 minutes in, you just don't have the same feeling and tension of the movie. And so when I find out that this Dandridge guy is pretty much guaranteed vampire, whatever it was, 10, 12 minutes into the movie, and then... There's the showdown like an hour, hour and a half later, but nothing really has changed in terms of like tension or who's getting or or who to look out for. And the only reason anyone's in any trouble is because nobody believes Charlie and they're all kind of like willfully obtuse about it. So <laughs> I just, again, it's, I don't dislike a movie because of those things, but those are the little things that make me feel less invested in trying to piece it all together as it's happening, which I kind of like doing. And I just felt like this movie, because it's, you know, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, it just didn't have a mystery to it, really, you know? So I don't know if that's worth anything, but it's still my feeling, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Your feelings are worth plenty, Luke. Your feelings are worth plenty. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. What about Charlie for you, Alex? I guess we're going to talk about a little bit of the characters as we go through the plot, but any any other things about Charlie? Yeah, he was just there. He was a lead. Like, you need you need he the character there. to have the problem and face the problem, but he, did, he doesn't really have redeeming factors, and he was kind of annoying, but I didn't dislike him because of that. It was just like, well, he's, he's, he's there for plot. <laughs> but to talk about Luke's point a little bit about how you find out that, you know, Jerry's... A vampire right away i didn't mind that because part of the suspense of the movie was seeing if charlie could convince other people that you know jerry is a vampire mm-hmm. when they do like you know when they do inevitably find out that he is a vampire what are they going to do about it like there there were tension points that i felt invested in and like how are they going to stop him and then there was like the little subplot of like jerry seeing you know amy as like someone that he he used to love and kidnapping her and turning her into a vampire and then him turning ed into a vampire like there are these little subplots that you know weren't great but they weren't bad and they kept me invested throughout the film outside of certain scenes being too long i I was like pretty interested throughout the whole movie like how are they going to stop him you could probably guess 
just based off of your knowledge of how movies are and your your prediction of this type of movie is probably going to end up being like a good ending but like how are they going to get there one thing i really did like was the whole kind of vampire lore in how they were to fight the vampires yes like all that stuff was cool to me in in the sense that like if we're talking reality vampires don't exist but then if we're talking more about vampires and we like oh how do you kill a vampire of course we're going to entertain the fact like because of all this culture that we've ingested throughout history it's like oh you you put a stake through a vampire's heart or you know vampires can't drink or touch holy water or you know they're they're very they're they're scared of crosses or you know they they can't survive in the sunlight you know like that kind of mm-hmm vampire lore has kind of transcended throughout all of history from whenever vampires started existing to all the way (laughs) till now and it it was it was interesting and really cool for me to see that like of course in this tv show that peter vincent hosts he's and all these movies there's like this is how you kill the vampire and then he realizes in the middle of the movie it's like oh like he is a vampire because i can't see him in the mirror and realizes like all this bullshit that i've been spouting because i'm an actor is actually (laughs) true and is relevant to how we're gonna stop this this like this vampire it was it was funny to me and it was like it was cool to see and them fight the vampire and like you know it's even like the little one-off line where it's like what what about well, they're about to go back in the house to rescue amy and charlie talks to peter and he's like what if like what what are we gonna do it's like well don't worry i have my gun it's like but like he's a vampire he's like <laughs> he's immune to bullets and it's like no it's for his roommate billy right and it's just it's it's like little bits of that that was like it kept like anytime the weirdness or the slowness of the movie slow pacing of it kind of like pulled me out a little bit there was always something that was like this is interesting I'm, i'm gonna lean lean back forward and watch this movie more and it was like i thought it struck a good balance of having plot develop constantly without it feeling too forced in and that was what I liked about knowing that Jerry was a vampire by minute 12. Right. There was always suspense for me to look forward to in this movie. And it was it was cool to see. Yeah, I, I guess you just did a better job of suspending your disbelief than me <laughs> when that kind of stuff happens. Because... Well, I, like... Immediately in my mind... I mean, like we're we're watching we're watching an '80s horror movie. I, I'm 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 going in expe- not expecting it to be a grand masterpiece, right? Well, no, but but I still think if Charlie knows, quote unquote, knows that Jerry is a is a vampire, yet, and we talked about this in other episodes. I think Ring actually. If this is a universe where vampires exist, can exist, but also like that weird middle ground where it's like real life where no one believes vampires exists. I don't feel any of the tension of Charlie trying to convince anybody that va- that Dandridge is a vampire because everyone's going to be like, well, they're not real. What are you talking about? So it's a failed mission from the start for him to tell anyone, right? It's mm. just like if Charlie was really trying to convince anyone to believe that Jerry is a vampire, he should have just tried to make the manifest vampire things happen in front of other people because that's really the only way that... <laughs> what's what's his name yeah. peter believes it at all or even the other his friends right and so i think you're left uh, we're narratively we're left in this weird middle ground where there is a vampire in a world that doesn't believe in vampires so there really isn't anything for charlie to do <laughs> about that in any sort of sensical way so i'm 
pulled out of the narrative there thinking like why is he doing anything like what what possible plan could he have to convince everyone that jerry is a vampire but then (laughs) if it's just schlock and camp why have any of these scenes of him trying to convince them in the movie at all i don't know okay yeah yeah so i'll kind of talk about this and how i why i liked how they did it in this movie so Yes, him trying to convince others was kind of a waste of time and was part of why this movie was too long. Like him bringing the cop to Jerry's house and being like, I can prove it. Like he's in the (laughs) basement, he's a vampire. And the cop just being like, yeah, it's, it's, that was, (laughs) that was like, so that was obviously like to show that nobody will believe him. But like there were extra scenes of Charlie trying to convince others. And we're like already at that point, it's like, okay, this Plot device has gone on too long. You need to end it. Mm. So yes, I will agree with you on that. But what I really liked about how the characters became united in a common goal was it was it was so meta. The, this movie was so meta in the fact that it was Amy, Ed, and Peter that were they were trying to prove that he wasn't a vampire, and in doing <laughs> yeah. so, they did they did prove yeah, he yeah, was yeah. a vampire. That's great. And it was like yeah, I, yeah. I liked how they did that. It was it was funny to me, and That's it was true. It, 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 that that was another thing that made it really obvious to me that this was like a tongue-in-cheek movie like mm, yeah I, I i just i just liked how they did it that way and i think the scenes where like what like the plot device to where they finally realize that he actually is a vampire is you know oh remember in like in this certain movie that i did once like this is the prop i used and i couldn't see a vampire through the reflection so you learn okay in in the lore of vampires like vampires can't be seen in mirrors like the reflection can't be seen and then he like accidentally sees that like there's no like it, it's such it's so stupid but it's funny because they went in with the purpose of proving that he's not yeah, a vampire yeah, yeah. that's true and i like yeah. that yeah it's i i love that all the all the the stories around vampires have been treated as fiction and peter vincent is like oh wait this is all based on truth after all like there's <laughs> there's something deeper happening where it's like the hollywood screenwriters and the people who write about vampires know that there are vampires for real and we are all just like, I don't know, it's just movie yeah. stuff. Like kind of putting this in a real, <laughs> yeah. real world sense. Like, like a lot of people on earth know about Harry Potter and there's huge Harry Potter fans and they, lots of people, like millions of people have read the books and watched the movies and they know all, like there's a bunch of Harry Potter nerds out there, myself included, but we know it's not real. But let's say that one day I picked up a stick that looked like a wand and I was like, haha, Expelliarmus. And, Luke fucking like shot backwards and his his coffee that was holding in his hand like jumped out of his hand. It's like yeah. What the fuck? Like everything I know about reality has flipped on itself based off of stuff that I yeah. know. And yeah. that's kind of what this movie exactly. felt like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I it seems pretty hopeless for Charlie essentially. <laughs> you know, he's pretty Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just fucked, right? Like in the same way, like, the character of the ring in the ring, or ring, are just fucked. Because they live in a supernatural dimension they don't know about and can't control. So, <laughs> I feel the same. But they Charlie. do know about, they do know about this supernatural world. They know everything about it is the thing. He, I think that's what makes it funny. Yeah, but, but then why does nobody <laughs> listen to Charlie for, like, the first 45 minutes of the movie? Like, no. Because nobody <laughs> believes him, as they shouldn't. Yeah, but... I think that's the brilliant thing about it. Like, they did drag it on too long, but I think that was <laughs> what was so great about this, is, like, like, obviously, in this movie reality, vampires do exist, but this movie reality yeah. is, is very much based on our reality. 
No one is gonna fucking believe me if I go down if I go down the street and I'd be like, this guy living in this house is a vampire. Everybody's gonna be like, shut the fuck up, Alex. Go stay in your own apartment and don't leave. You know, wear a mask, whatever. You know, they're gonna they're gonna yell that at me. But, but like, but Alex, that's that's kind of what this movie was. Unless you are actually a crazy person, you're not gonna take that tack to convince other people, right? So so it means that Charlie, it means Charlie is insane. We'll, we'll cut him some slack. He's he's a high school kid. Yeah, but <laughs> he's failing trig, Luke. He's failing trig. I I guess. I, I take all your points on the kind of like meta and insular self commentary and like the irony and trying you prove a when you're trying to prove not a it, it's it's definitely a rush. <laughs> I guess I just would say that I think movies that are intended in that way just don't click with me in the same way that movies that are internally consistent do. So like two examples we've done hereditary and get out are such great movies that don't rely on audiences knowledge about any other movies to make them really self-contained and enjoyable and i trust me i love cultural references as much as the next person but like even though i liked nightmare on elm street a lot i would never be tempted to say it's in the same category as a hereditary or a get out because of its own thing and i think that that's why i have such a deep appreciation for the movie scream because scream does such a scream is the best movie i've ever seen that has all of these meta self-aware referential points and i remember the first time i saw scream i had no idea of the twist it it was itself its own mystery that i loved so you know i guess i'm just comparing that yeah yeah. yeah, but we're just—I—I <laughs> I think at this point we're just saying what we like and dislike, yeah. and those are both valid, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, uh, what I liked about the lore, the way they use the vampire lore in this movie, was great because there is such an audience knowledge knowledge base of what vampires know, right? So, you know, we know they can't go in the daylight. We know crosses. We know garlic. We know silver. Like there's all these different little pieces of the lore. And because it's all fork, fork, folklore, folklore, <laughs> it's folklore all... at dinner time. It's folklore. <laughs> anyway, anyway, <laughs> because it's all, you know, just stories and word of mouth and passing down. Every vampire movie seems to do this thing where at least it they will have one scene where they say, you know the vampire lore, but that's actually bullshit. That's actually all, all made out. Because some there are some vampire stories where vampires can go in daylight. I'm looking at you, Twilight. <laughs> there are some, some vampire stories where they're like, actually, garlic is no big deal. And in this one, it's like the cross doesn't work unless you really believe in it. <laughs> Which is also a change. Sometimes it's the cross no matter what. And so it's, I just love that vampire movies always have a thing where they're like, hey, audience, I know you're coming in there with your, you know, your Mr. Big Shot pants on thinking, you know, everything about vampires. But in this universe, they love garlic and fuck you for thinking otherwise. <laughs> and it's just that way in our universe. Yeah. And that's, that's just a vampire trope now, right? The yeah. fact that we know so much about vampires, but you know what? This one thing is actually not true. A lot of that kind of commentary on vampires reminds me a lot of this young adult teen series I read as a kid, The Vampire, or The Saga of Darren Shan. It's like a series of 12 books, and it's about a kid that becomes a vampire, and it's... It, it, a movie was made of it, Cirque du Freak. Mm. Oh! Yeah, I've never seen the movie, I don't plan to, but the books were, like, talking about, like, he meets this vampire, 
Mr. Krepsley and he becomes a vampire and just follows his whole storyline. And like a lot of like the first couple books was like, actually, like vampires, we aren't as fast as the speed of light, but we can do this thing called <laughs> flit where we go super fast. Or it's like, actually, we, we can eat garlic. And it's like, yes, we we won't die in sunlight, but our skin will burn real bad. So we got to put on a ton of sunscreen. It's it's stuff like that that's become like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's become the vampire commentary and the, like and how you do vampires now. It's like any kind of these like folkloric monsters and stuff. Like you got to put a different spin to it, and the different spin is yes, everything that humanity knows about these things is true, except for these things. They don't work. They don't operate in our universe like that. You know. I yeah. I have to imagine that some of the satire of that comes in from the fact that so much of the vampire legend is very like accentuated in its anti-Christianness by Christians. <laughs> so that's why mm. all of the remedies yeah, yeah. are like holy water or crosses, right? Like vampires are categorically anti-Christian, so you need these very iconic Christian things to stop them and even particularly Catholic things. And so I yeah. If I was writing a satire on the vampire lore, it would be, yeah, I mean, of course, crosses will take us out, but only crosses made in Transylvania or only crosses made in Judea or whatever, right? Like, yeah. we're not taking out... Oh, or oh, a right, like a, a... like a Protestant cross can take us out, <laughs> right? Like this... Could... It's actually just lowercase t's we're allergic to. We can't do lowercase t's. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, vampires can't hear or they can't survive unless you say, you know, the seven dirty words to them or something uh, like that, yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like we need to do we need to do an amendment because we've been giving out false information. Mm. So for any Draculas that are listening, daytime is not safety for you. <laughs> but for everyone else, daytime is safety. Speaking <laughs> of self-reference, Billy. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> out-meted the meta. <laughs> you broke the eighth wall. <laughs> I did it. I'm a hypercube wall breaker, but but yeah, just going back to your point about Charlie not being able to convince anybody for the first half of the movie or the first whatever third or forty percent of the movie, it was really really like it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. And didn't work until it did work. Anybody he tried to talk to, the cops, it didn't work. His girlfriend, it didn't work. But then she, then he's like, yeah, I went to go see Peter Vincent and I asked him if he would come help it. And she was like, you know what? I believe you now. I'm going to help you because you went and bothered an actor. <laughs> now I'm on it's board. Like, I just love that she was like, no, 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 no. Yes. It's like the weapons against vampires. They don't work till they do. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the biggest problem of this movie was in real life. If you have a problem running into a brick wall multiple times may work. And in movies, that may work as well, but it might not make up entertaining screen time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to see someone do the same thing over and over again, unless you like watching Groundhog Day. And and just like <laughs> how unsubtly Peter Vincent was like, no, I won't do it. I'll give you $500. Sign me up. <laughs> you know? Like yes. it felt... <laughs> It felt like like a 1930s, like, ho, ho, I'm in. I, I loved the way, I, I want to I get the actor's name. So if someone can be faster at Googling, because I really want to credit him for his performance. Roddy McDowell. As Peter Vincent. Roddy McDowell. <laughs> just hats off to the man, because he played it as such like, you could tell he's been doing this Peter Vincent role for so long that 
even though he mentions that it's not even his real name, he believes he's Peter Vincent more than he remembers that he's somebody else. Like he's he's not whoever he was before. And I just love the like sort of sleazy actor guy who's like, I have integrity, but also if you offer me money, I'll do it. Yeah. You know, like he 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 wants to be a big shot and obviously he's landed this gig on like late night shitty local you know horror movie host which is probably not where he wanted he sounded like maybe he had a british accent so maybe he had some theater training before i don't know there's a whole rich backstory for peter vincent but i just loved his his performance and that's why halfway through this movie i was like this movie is about peter vincent believing in himself (laughs) and i was really surprised that he got to survive to the end of the movie because I was like, oh, he's going to die and he's going to give Charlie, ha- he's going to show Charlie how to do it. But no, he got to live and he got to like learn a lesson about, I guess, believing in vampire lore because the cross doesn't work. And then he's like, but now I believe there's vampires. You know what? So now it works. At, at the end, the vampires became too real for him. So he had to switch over to aliens. Yeah, but then like, are we supposed to just assume <laughs> that they're saying aliens are real now too? Like the Martians? <laughs> I feel like that has to be well, the message. Don't you know they are real, Luke? There's a sequel. Yeah, we're gonna see. We're gonna next week. We're watching Mars Wants Flesh. Uh, I thought we, I thought we were show. watching Science. Would it be? Would it be Mars Midnight? <laughs> Mars Midnight. Yeah. Or we could watch Orgy of ah, Blood. I guess you, as well. We could also watch that one. That was that was the one that he. I remembered. believe. I believe that movie is actually pronounced Caligula. <laughs> Speaking but, of McDowell. <laughs> that's good. I love the the trope of the actor actually knowing. I don't know if it's a trope because I can only really think of one other example right now. But the actor having a bunch of fiction lore that ends up saving the day. And the other time that I'm thinking of right now is the movie Galaxy Quest, yeah, where yeah. you know Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver they're all they're all in this like Star Trek type show, and then it turns out that this these group of aliens saw those shows and believes it, and so they built everything. Based on Galaxy Quest and then found the actors, which I just like that movie. That movie's the, great. The reality comparison of this is if I suddenly needed to rob a casino and I like go to LA and I find George Clooney, I'm like, Mr. Clooney, I need help robbing this casino. Please help me. You have to listen to me. That's, that's the equivalent of what like Charlie did. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know what? Later on in, 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 a, few, in a few weeks... George Clooney's like, you know what? I will help that yeah. that guy rob the casino. And you pull and it off. Like, okay, yeah. so in most casinos, yeah, and we pull it off. <laughs> it's like, huh, there are laser trip mines in this vault. What do you know? <laughs> Wait a minute. They just built it to the specs of Ocean's Eleven. I know how to break into this thing. It'll be yeah, easy. I, I think like that 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 kind of meta ness of it is why I like this movie. Totally, so much. totally. And I, I I have no problem with those meta things. I, I think they're not quite as good movies as like movies that are self contained awesome, but I still enjoy them. I guess this movie more than other meta movies felt though that it had parts that it was trying to make us as the audience feel like it was making quote unquote a real movie just because of the length of the scenes and the amount of time spent on Charlie knowing he's a vampire, but nobody else knowing it was just like, well, Mm -hmm. what's, what's the, what punch are we getting to here where this is all 
airtime that could be spent making self-referential comments and jokes about this movie. So why why are we running <laughs> yeah. through alleys? Why are we, you know, like uh, these super long dance scenes? Like what? I, I don't know. It just felt unconnected to the really great jokey parts of it, which I didn't. It's just a choice of the director, I guess, but I didn't quite understand. It's because every movie in the 80s needed to have one entire song played from start to finish. I liked that song, though. That was a good song. (laughs) It was a good song. Yeah, when they're in the the club and he's hypnotizing Amy and she gets, you know, she gets enthralled by him. That whole dance sequence just, like, it it made me think of Pulp Fiction so much. For sure. Yeah. Like Pulp Fiction in itself is, is a quite serious movie, but it's like it's poking fun at itself mm-hmm. a lot. And then just in the middle of the movie, there's this random dance scene. Kind of the same yeah, way. Jack Rabbit Slings. Yeah. Ra- random dance scene in the middle of Fright Night. But it was it, that yeah. one scene. There was the really cool effect where Amy is dancing with Jerry. And as they're dancing, she looks like at, a I guess, like a big mirror wall. And just like it looks like she's dancing by herself. I thought that was a really cool effect. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's just like, because of how funny, like ultimately funny this movie is and meta self-referential, why are there seen, like, are we ever supposed to feel like Charlie is in danger ever, actually? Because I guess not. But then why are these, these, there were a few scenes like it was just one-on-one where it's like, I'm going to get you, Charlie. And I'm the audience being like, no, you're not, Dandridge, because I know what kind of movie this is. (laughs) I feel like, his idea as like the director and writer, yeah, yeah, okay. I think he did both. I think his idea was he wanted to make this movie set in a kind of reality, mm. but also make it very 50s, 60s monster more right. horror movie-esque. It's like right at the start of the movie, it pans into Charlie's bedroom and like there's this vampire movie playing on the TV. Right, right, right. And those like, it's it's very obvious it's, it's an old movie because like the dialogue is very like, yeah, see, huh? Like, oh, your lips are so red. Can I kiss them? You know, it's it's stuff that that would have happened in the fifties. Like, that's how movies were written back then. But it's yeah, I think like yeah, yeah, true. he wanted to make this movie as a reflection of those fifties movies, where it's like you know, at the end of the movie, the vampire's gonna die, the hero's gonna live, mm-hmm. and there's gonna be a a sweet makeout scene. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, no, not the fifties. Because of the purity code, right? I guess I guess I was thrown off. Maybe I'm, like I'm trying to think through why I was thrown off by some of these scenes. I think one of the things that threw me off is that it almost felt like Jerry. He did such a good job. He felt kind of believable. So in a way that Freddy Krueger, yes. yeah. Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger never feels believable as a villain, right? Like I'm watching him and I'm like, ha ha, awesome. But I when I, there's a scene <laughs> scenes where I'm watching Jerry and I'm like. This guy wants to fuck these people up, right? Like, wants he, to fuck these people. Yeah, yeah, he wants, he wants to, to fuck these people. And he's like, he's charming <laughs> and he's got some jokes, but he also has some like actual venom in his soul. It feels like to to Charlie and to Peter. And it's like, huh? It's harder for me to mentally square like a serious, intense villain with a schlockier movie. So maybe that's part of my dissonance, mm-hmm. you know. Jerry, to his credit, he he did such a good villain that it felt like it could have been in a very serious movie. But I think the villain that for sure would have fit the movie better would have been like as if he was like a character in Tropic Thunder. Or something <laughs> yes, like that, <right>? definitely. 
Yeah. And and to your point of, of all the times when Charlie's in peril and we know he's not really going to get there because at this Jerry Dandridge, this this Dracula uh, was very much like playing into the, the, the toying with, you know, the, the prey, like the cat and mouse thing. Like the, anytime he has a chance to just kill Charlie or kill somebody, he's always got to chew on the scenery a little bit. He's always got to like draw it out until it's just enough time for you know, someone to come swooping in at the last second and save him, but they give him 45 last seconds every time he's in danger for someone to come and be the change and be the way that, that he gets saved. And I really think that that is also you know, from the old B movies, like from the old B movies of, you know, oh, your heroine is in danger and she's tied to the train tracks and oh, what's going to happen? Oh, no, the train's coming and look how far away it is. And then it's like, uh, you know, at the very last second, they, they make that. They make saved. that joke in The Incredibles at the end when Syndrome's like, you caught me monologuing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I don't, they don't say, they don't say exactly. this in Incredibles. It's like, you son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't say you son of a bitch in a Pixar <laughs> no, but uh, same, same feeling, you know? That's true. They did say hell in Soul. I just watched that recently. Mm. That was good. But should we get back to the plot? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> we get back to the plots. So so he's accidentally proven that Jerry Dandridge is a vampire when they're trying to get Peter Vincent to prove that he's not a vampire. So Charlie leaves this stupid theory alone. And then we get the scene that for me actually did remind me quite a bit about Nightmare on Elm Street was them running through the, oh, sure. the alleyways and the streets. And it was all very like it was all very weirdly lit. And there was lots of steam. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, there's an alleyway where Ed is not scared to take the shortcut, which just seemed like the alleyway led to more alleyways and it didn't seem like this was the way to get home at all. But that's where Ed gets... Ed got turned into Ed the Ed needed to watch movies like this to know to not go down that by himself. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was for right? Ed to watch. It should have been for Ed. And it, it made me think of... Like, this movie must have inspired other vampire movies and shows that came later because it felt very much like the scenery of the alleyways and the city streets felt like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It mm. felt like, you know, Sunnyvale or Sunnydale. I can't remember what it is now. Oh my gosh. But anyway, where, wherever ba- Buffy the Vampire Slayer is at, it's basically all alleyways and cemeteries. It seems to be like the entire layout of the, the city. And it gave me vibes that Fright Night would have been an influence on Joss Whedon in creating Buffy the Vampire scene. And all the dance scenes, like the dance scene at the the club reminded me there's a big one in Blade where there, you know, he kills a bunch of vampires at a blood rave or something. <laughs> and of course, it's all early 2000s, so it's not 80s music. It's like house Matrix style music maybe playing with, at this. These maybe raves. with some Limp so, Biscuit put in there, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Probably some Limp Bizkit. Yeah, this movie felt... I felt like this movie, for as shocky as it was, it inspired a lot of stuff we've seen going forward Yeah, in other vampire stories. But they get chased through the alleyways for a really long time. Amy gets enthralled by him, and Ed gets bitten. And so it's just Charlie, all alone on his own. The cops won't help him, and he's he's got to get the help of Peter Vincent. He's got to get George Clooney to rob that casino. <laughs> 
he's such a coward in this movie, yeah. but then he like flips it around when he realizes that it, it's kind of like you've had the skills all along, he kind of like inner voice inside of him, <laughs> right? It's like you've had the you've had the <laughs> screenplay all along. You've known all this time how to defeat the vampire. Well, it's actually... And, like, I just love seeing his character flip around like that. Like, It's actually like Ender's Game, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you've been training your entire career for this moment. Yeah, and, and like, accidentally learning how to, to be a vampire killer. And there's a whole scene where he's like, I'm Peter Vincent, a vampire killer. I am Peter Vincent, a vampire killer. He's, like, talking himself into <laughs> yeah. it. And he's just, like, he's just... He's just so proud of himself by the end of the movie that he he manages to to help Charlie defeat the vampire. I know I've pointed it out before, but I'll have to point it out every single time it happens. Like one of my big bugaboos in these older movies is why do people start talking in rebuttal to people before the other people are done? Like it would be as if there's still seven words left in Charlie's sentence and Amy or his mom already have a fully fledged argument against things that he hasn't even said yet. Like, like it's just like this weird, uncanny way of no one talks to each other like this. And I bet you in the eighties, they didn't either. So why is it in the movie? Mm, yeah. It's just like, you know what? It's a linguistic Luke, oddity because they didn't want to make this movie any longer That's with right. those extra real pauses. <laughs> <laughs> they needed 75 minutes of dance scene. Luke, where are they going to trim from that? Yeah, but it's but it's always it's also just like ah, oh, get over it, Charlie. You don't know what you're saying, <laughs> you know, like this like over the top. Oh, come on, Billy. Oh, come on. You're just you're just trying to be funny, Billy. <laughs> you know, it's like it's all I'm ever trying to do. This Luke. whole movie, Ed, <laughs> right? This whole movie, Ed. Ah, oh, oh, Alex, come on. It's just like what the fuck. Ed was really a strange character to me because it didn't seem like he fully believed Charlie ever, but he was just sort of up for what he was just up for whatever. Like he was the type of guy that was like, hey, we're going to go get Peter Vincent to prove that Charlie doesn't have a vampire in He's like, yeah, that sounds cool. I'll go. Or along. it's like, that's he a, doesn't like that's a stupid <laughs> idea, but I got nothing planned tonight. So I'll take along. You know what? <laughs> nothing else. He uh, had I'll just seen the Jim Carrey film. Yes, man. And was on that <laughs> trend, you know? Ah, yes. Yes. There's a lot of time travelers in your you world, hey, Luke? They're just tra- traveling. I, I have <laughs> opened up the sluice gates for cultural references that I don't care if they're anachronistic or not now. <laughs> it's what makes the most sense. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, so anyway, Peter Vincent turns off his targeting computer and he knows how to <laughs> defeat <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> that might be the best Star Wars reference we've done yet. <laughs> <laughs> That was good, Billy. That Thank was really you. Good. Use the force, Peter. What? The stake. Use the stake, Peter. Yeah. I guess the, the whole role of Ed's character was to show that, you know, vampire lore is real. You know, some vampires can turn into bats like Jerry and some vampires turn into wolves like Ed did. So... And I think there's like in in vampire lore in Dracula, Dracula can turn into a bat or he can turn into a wolf or a mist. Like I've seen in in Bram Stoker's the one with Gary Oldman, he definitely turns into a wolf at one point. Mm. And in the one that was on Netflix earlier this year in January, the Dracula miniseries, which is a real hot mess, but I encourage you all to watch it. He also ha- he also turns into a wolf and then 
very grossly transforms you know what form. i as weird and out of place as ed's character was holy crap props to the special effects and makeup department in this movie yes. for when he was a wolf and he was like trans mid transforming as he was dying it was so gruesome so gross and so creepy and i was if we're doing spoilers that was the scariest part of the movie for me <laughs> Just seeing that whole transformation of him like dying as he's transforming back to a human. He's like a half yeah. wolf, half man, and oh my goodness. Oh, so gross. It, yeah, the the prosthetics, the even the like I know the, the the shifting when you see his foot change back and that sort of time lapse stuff was very was very creepy. And also, Alex, that was one of my contenders for scariest part. Just the viscerality mm-hmm. of it and it was like the thing yeah. you know and the thing had like dog parts mm, yeah and it, yeah. it reminded me kind of, of of that level of prosthetic work and even all the prosthetic work was good in this movie i found mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was very over the top but it wasn't like super plasticky looking and i'll we'll talk a, a little bit later about amy and her her prosthetics yeah it was good that was a great scene i was just gonna say the blood looked like maybe ghostbusters watched this movie and then got the people who did the blood for this movie to be the slimy the goop people for ghostbusters i think this movie came out after ghostbusters oh you're right ghostbusters 84 right i was thinking 86 no it was 84 so other way around but also these uh these filmmakers time traveled (laughs) yeah this is a time travel movie remember back to the future came out this year so they discovered they knew how (laughs) <laughs> that's true they all had yeah. deloreans they're all zipping all over the place yeah but jerry broke charlie's car that's why he couldn't travel away in time oh man and that's why we saw some serious shit agreed uh it was at this point in the movie when they were going up to the house charlie and peter were going up and they're like no we're gonna we're gonna sneak around the back because that's that's the best way to sneak in. And then the door just, the front door just opens wide and they're like, okay, I guess we'll just go in the front door then. And that was the first time I asked myself out loud. I don't know if you heard it over the, the sound of the music, but that was the first time I asked myself, is this movie supposed to be a parody or is this movie supposed to be serious? Just because that point was getting really, really goofy. Yeah. And I think I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is the goofy part of the movie. And then we see that Vincent, at that point, Vincent hasn't got the faith because I keep calling him Dracula. The Dracula manages to crush his first cross because Peter doesn't believe. And then Charlie believes with his little cross. Now, like, he's, he's got the faith. He believes it's going to work. He just had to believe in himself. It's not about the size of the cross. It's how much you believe in it. That's what matters. It's true. <laughs> That's the lesson you know what? You learn. Honestly, I'm going to choose to interpret that as a insight on the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism as performed by Martin Luther. You know, here I can stand, I do no other. <laughs> I can do no other. Obviously, Charlie is the Martin Luther character of this film, where all of the fancy crosses don't work because they come from the institution, like Peter Vincent, right? Like Entertainment Hollywood, the institution. But Charlie's just the little guy up in northern Germany who just wants his own thing and has faith in himself, you know? So that's that's the deeper right message. On the door? That's the deep yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the deeper message here. There was a scene earlier in the movie where he's looking at his watch and then he looks at the church and I bet in his head he's thinking this place would be a great thing to nail up some uh, some requests. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
You know what? I'm going to nail up some 94 requests. to 96. We'll average it out. All right. We'll do some. <laughs> yeah. There was this movie is all over the place, but the very last act when they fight Dandridge and he almost dies like six times. This movie had as many times for Dandridge to almost die as Return of the King had endings overall because there's the scene where he tries to stake him and then he can't get high. So all the windows are breaking and the sun is rising and you think that's when he's going to end. And then he turns into a bat and you think that's when they're going to get him because he turns in, he turns into this big devil dog from Ghostbusters. Yeah, His roommate saves him, but his roommate dies and doesn't die. Yeah. Yeah, they kill they kill Billy. They shoot him, and then he's like, "Oh, I guess you killed Billy. Oh dear. Okay, goodbye forever." And then they turn around, and Billy's like, "Oh, I'm just gonna walk up these really creaky stairs. Don't worry about me. I'm still fine." And then they shoot him a bunch more also, times, and then it's Misty. <laughs> that much smoke. <laughs> like how much? How so much smoke. smoke and mist was in this movie? Like just an absurd amount. <laughs> there was so much smoke, and then. Peter or Billy comes back. Another person, another person named Billy in in a horror movie that dies. This is really great. This is good for me. I know they all spell it differently than me. That's why I changed my name. <laughs> but <laughs> that seems like a way more shallow reason, Billy. <laughs> yeah, I choose to not believe that about you. Very good. But yeah, they they stake him, and we get a scene that could have gone in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was a little bit more gory than the scene with the, when they all the Nazis look in the Ark and they all melt. That's sort of what reminded me of the scene where Peter was dissolving, or not Peter, Billy was dissolving. But then they all go down to the basement. All the windows are painted black. I guess they took that Rolling Stone song uh, one step further. And they have another long, long fight. Yeah, and then Amy comes down as her transformative vampire bride state, right? So that's like another extra fight that they have to do. Yeah, and her makeup was really gross too. Like the way her mouth was so oversized, she seemed like, I don't know how the prosthetics worked and I was fascinated to see because it wouldn't have been CG. It wouldn't have been altered that way at that point. So it must have been like a practical effect. It looked cool. To get her to have that big fangy mouth. Yeah, the whole basement scene just took too long. It was like... Oh, you're, we're going to win? No, you're, we're not going to win yet. Oh, we're going to win now? No, not yet. Oh, no, no. Now we're going to win? No, just one more. Okay, now we win. <laughs> now we win. And so now they win by breaking all the windows because it's it's daytime. The Upstairs was daytime, so, you know, Dandridge is like, I got to get to, gotta get to my coffin. And they try to stake him, or they do stake him, and that isn't even enough to kill him because, I guess, fine. It doesn't matter. But then they spend a whole bunch of time throwing things out the windows in order to let the daytime pour through. And there was one very clear scene of Peter Vincent standing in a little patch of daytime and the vampire couldn't get him. And I was like, daytime is safety. We, we, we spit only facts and truth on this podcast. <laughs> we do know it. And then apparently when enough windows break, there's also an airlock in the house. Like it's in vacuum space because all the stuff is rushing out and there's chairs flying out the windows and everything's breaking even more and dandridge eventually explodes into green fire and you know goo and slime and glop and gore and stuff mm -hmm. and another important thing that peter vincent's 
brain knew about vampire lore is if a vampire bites a human and infects them and transforms them into a vampire as long as you killed the original vampire before dawn then all the effects of the bitten vampire will be reversed and hence amy is saved amy is saved they can make out and watch alien movies yeah i wonder if ed's actually dead now though ed's dead baby ed's dead (laughs) you know it's lucky it's lucky that amy going back was one of the parts of vampire lore that didn't arbitrarily change for the conveniences of the plot like that was really lucky (laughs) (laughs) but also okay so at the very end peter survives and because he killed a vampire that means he got his show back like that part (laughs) he didn't really understand he was like okay i killed the vampire like what did he do i want to see that scene where he goes to the office is like you'll hire me back because i've killed the vampire and they're like all right peter we got you your contract back well actually that's exactly what happened (laughs) i have a kind of like pseudo real question more about like your personally like oh no do you because this feels like the opposite of do you remember the time in your life? Because I have a very vivid memory of this. I think I was I, I was probably seven. I was seven or eight. But the moment, I had a moment in my life where I had like a, a an epiphany where I was like, man, life is not like a movie. Or life is not like a TV show. You know, like there's all these happy endings or endings. And yet my life just seems to be going on and on. So there's like this weird realization when... I guess the the best way to think about it is like when the media that goes into your life is revealed to be not the truth necessarily of existence. And I think that there's a funny, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but there's a funny play there where Peter Vincent is going back to media with the truth. I don't know. Like he real life was actually like he was talking about but he didn't know that so now that he's going back to the fiction he's more well equipped because he realizes that there is more real life in the movie than he knew which is like this is a completely different conversation but like the sociological nerd in me thinks of like the marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message like the fact the fact that we're watching a movie is the point way more than any specific movie we watch uh and i think that there's an element of truth in that considering we pick out all of these things that we enjoy about the movie even though it's not really about the story of the movie itself we're watching right like it reminds us of other things so anyway that's neither here nor there i just think that that's kind of interesting well did you speaking of the this cycle and the the return and everything did you notice when they were in the very last scene when they're making out the tv is narrating and it's like and so we're back to the back to where we begin and things are back to the start and it's just like the movie opens with them watching a a movie and making out and the movie closes with them watching a movie (laughs) and making out and i did i just i think there's no way the audio that was picked to be playing on the tv was an accident Mm -hmm. like just just the way that uh, that came through was, I, I was just like, okay, movie. All right, Tom Holland. I see. <laughs> I see. I think that's quite a deep theme about how, you know, life is cyclical. And I think it really, like, Fright Night really inspired this little indie movie that came out in 94. I believe it was called mm. The Lion King. Yeah. And they, they oh. open up with this great song <laughs> about, you know, how life goes in a circle. <laughs> Well, actually, I think Fright Night would have influenced Hamlet and then The Lion King. Oh, right, of course. 
William Shakespeare, the first yeah. the first guy to get the COVID vaccine. <laughs> he took a lot of inspiration from Frightening. Yeah, but was it really William Shakespeare who got the COVID vaccine? We don't know. There were so many William. There's so many people who said said their names were William Shakespeare. We don't know. Who knows? <laughs> so I think the real oh lesson is time travel is real and it affects all of us, especially in this reality, right? Yeah, that's why that's why Tom Holland, after he he took all of his Avengers money, and then he aged up, he built a time machine, went back to 1985 to make Fright Night. He didn't need to build Boom. a time machine; he just used the time stone. He just used the one that Tony Stark invented in <laughs> Avengers Endgame. <laughs> okay, have have either of you seen the movie Predestination with Ethan Hawke? I think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Oh, I really want to spoil it because this is such. <laughs> it's essentially a time travel movie. And I can't spoil it because, Billy, you haven't seen it. But I haven't uh, seen it. Is it anything like Final Destination, which I also haven't seen? Isn't Final Destination also about time travel? Uh, I think it's about Destiny. Oh, Destiny. Huh? Weren't we talking about a vampire movie at one point? <laughs> no, that's irrelevant. We're talking about something else now. <laughs> I think basically I'll just, I'll leave it, I'll say it like this. With enough time and enough time travel, Tom Holland just becomes everyone. You want to get mm, yes. real cyclical? I'll we'll be better off. You want for to it. be real cyclical? <laughs> One person becomes everybody. Oh my gosh. So, for Fright Night, here we are at the beginning or the end of the pod. What are some final <laughs> thoughts? Some final anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, one one actual serious thought I had. Oh yeah. So when when Jerry breaks into Charlie's room, at the very start of the movie to like kill him because charlie found out he's a vampire yes yeah. and then he goes i'll give you something i never had a choice like forget about me and i'll forget about you and i thought that was like interesting like that's maybe some back lore about how you know jerry wasn't always a vampire but he got bitten unwillingly and has become a vampire because of that i kind of thought they might sorry i kind of thought they might elaborate on that but you were you weren't finished so yeah and i just you. thought like yeah, this kind of goes back to how Jerry, as a vampire villain, was just so serious and so well acted by Chris Sheridan that it felt kind of out of place. But it's like it's it was that little bit that was like, wow, this is a deep character, you know, that one one liner. And yeah, that's that's all I got. I agree. Yeah, and I wonder what the the head canon or the character bible that he had to study from. Maybe it went into a little bit of Danbridge's backstory about what he was doing before he became a vampire and moved to a town. We don't actually ever get a setting of this place. Hey, it's never like, here you are in Chicago or L.A. Or it was anywhere. probably Chicago. <laughs> it was, yeah. Any town America. That would be interesting to, to see if there was any theories on what Jerry Dandridge was before he became a homeowning va- Dracula. <laughs> Yeah. Final general movie thoughts. I thought the special effects and prosthetic work were really, really well done in this movie. Kind of just repeating about that that scene where Ed transforms into the wolf and dies. It was just so visceral, so gruesome, but so well done from a movie mm-hmm. standpoint. And then I said this at the start. I think this this movie had the best soundtrack of any movie we've seen so far. You know, the whole the club the club dance scene. That was a catchy catchy song whatever song that was and but then also like the the sexy vampire theme with the synths and then like <laughs> the electric guitar on top it was 
yeah i love that song it was so good and i am gonna go listen to it once we're done recording <laughs> it's gonna be on your spotify playlist yeah. now final thoughts luke this is a slightly to less than slightly inferior version of nightmare on elm street so it's just not quite as on top of itself <laughs> in the way that Nightmare on Elm Street just felt totally <laughs> fluidly on top of itself. And again, I just, I feel like there's no necessary reason why these meta, schlocky, campy films can't also deliver their own really self-contained story that is also interesting and mysterious and uh, like its own whodunit. So it's no surprise to me that the guy who made Nightmare on Elm Street, which is, I think, probably at least of all the movies we've done, the best schlock and the best self-reference. I think he took it an even step further with Scream, which is totally self-referential. And yet also if you, so in Scream, if you stripped every cultural reference, every self-reference, every horror trope reference, if you took every meta and self-aware thing out of Scream, you still have a pretty compelling whodunit, which is, pretty cool to mm. see a movie that manages to get both of those so well not screams whodunit isn't as good as hereditary or even the thing or but but it exists in a, in a pretty non-corny way and w- as i'm getting to see these other movies that are enjoyable but just seem to not quite strike that note of like a self-contained story that would be really compelling without all of the auxiliary things that are enjoyable. It's just interesting how I feel like my palette is becoming a little bit more matrices and complex. And like, I have more shelves to put different things in like more categories to slot different movies into based on the spectrum of how they are in all of these different Mm. variables. Right. And so Fright Night to me goes a good half point under Nightmare on Elm Street, just because I think it was maybe a bit funnier, Nightmare on Elm Street, but it's like of that style, which is enjoyable. And it benefited greatly from the fact that I get to talk about it with the two of you, (laughs) because these kind of movies, I always end up liking more after I talk about them, because I'm like this, (laughs) like basically Charlie's character, this whole movie, I'm like, fuck, dude, you are so stupid. You're just (laughs) stupid all the time. That could be that could yeah. be like the tagline for Charlie. This movie, stupid all the time. But he was the hero. He wishes he was Tom Hanks so bad. Yeah. So Sorry. yeah, I I like it more after talking about it to the two of you. But I'm still not tempted to call it a good movie. But it was enjoyable. And also, okay. did you know? That's fair. Did you know that there was a 2011 remake with? Colin Farrell and Anton Yelchin and I think Tony Collette is the mom. So I'd be interested in seeing that. And and David Tennant yeah, is as well. the is the Peter Vincent character, which it'd be so interesting to see like what modern twists they put on these eighties cheesy kind of horror films, you know? Oh yeah. McLovin's in it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I was actually looking at the cast list for it and Chris Sarandon plays a character in Fright Night 2011 called JD. Oh, really? <laughs> which I think is a nice a nice nod to Jerry Danbridge. That's great. And that also made me think of how we called him Dr. Acula and how Zach Braff's character in Scrubs was JD. So <laughs> just like, it's all a circle. <laughs> Man, this really is an orgy of blood, hey? 
such an orgy of blood. No, that was Event Horizon. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. <laughs> so I think Alex and I's scariest part of the film was the wolf scene. But Luke, do you have a different one that was the scariest part for you? I don't think I could actually pick a scariest part. There were, hmm, I guess it was not scary, but to be as fair-minded, like it was really weird to me when I saw Amy on the dance floor, like not being able to withstand or shove off his charms. Like that was just such a, that was such an uncanny, mm, that scene yeah. was so uncanny. So I'm going to call it, what was it? Up, Upum? Uptum? The most uncanny part of movie <laughs> Yeah, when she was just like, all of a sudden, yeah, she that's, that's she knows he's a vampire, but now she's just like, yeah, let's grind. <laughs> like, what? That's kind of weird. Well, I, th- I think that scene was, yeah, I think the point of that was to demonstrate his hypnosis powers, which vampires also have in some movies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, very weird, though, because, yeah. you know, she's a high school girl, and he's this ancient old vampire, so a little bit on the creepy oh, yeah. side there, Jerry. Oh, yeah. If you look at the ages at all, even if you take out that one is an immortal or at least very old, centuries old, maybe vampire, he's still like in the age of a man in his late to early, late thirties to early forties, and she is a high school girl. And it was like, oh no, yeah. no, 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 that, no, no, no. That reminds me of one of my favorite jokes from What We Do in the Shadows where Taika Waititi's character is dating this woman who looks like she, like he looks like he's about 35 and she looks like she's about 80. And he's like, you know, people always talk about the age difference, but like, you know, she doesn't care that I'm a couple hundred years older than her. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Sure. People say I'm robbing the cradle, but right. Like it's just, uh, if you like this movie, definitely watch what we do in the shadows because it's even further in the oh what we do in the shadows is so good agreed (gasps) okay well what do we want to rate this movie out of how about five bottles of tap holy water (laughs) sure five bottles five bottles of, of from the tap holy water i will go first i think that this movie was a mess it was weird and very oddly paced and even still I kind of had a heck of a fun time watching it and even more of a fun time talking about it. So I was thinking actually a, a little while ago in the recording, I was like, I wonder if our our votes would change if we gave a rating at the start of the second half of the podcast and then like talked about it and see if they changed from there. But I don't have the wherewithal to track that sort of thing. So for, for this one, I'm going to give this movie right down the middle – Slightly above, right down the middle, actually. 2.75 vials of holy water out of five. And Luke, why don't you go second? Well, mine definitely would have changed. I think probably if you had asked me at the beginning what I would give it, I would have said 1.5. But nothing to fear manages to make me enjoy things more. So probably with the pure, like, nothing to fear um, overlay, it would go up to three out of five. But I feel like I have to, even with that, I just basically categorically, like by default, have to take a full point off a movie that doesn't have its own narrative <laughs> that is compelling in a way that a lot of the movies we do are because that's just my bias. So I'm going to give this one a two, two out of five. All right. Now, if we listen back to Nightmare on Elm Street and this is not a half a point lower than your rating for Nightmare on Elm Street, 
please write in. Tell us. <laughs> Catch Luke out. <laughs> I actually, I think I gave Nightmare on Elm Street like a four, right? Wow. I think it was pretty well. High. If Nightmare on Elm Street had yeah, okay. its own anyway, who done it? It would have been real. Like it, I could have been a five. So yeah, that was good. Alex, what are you rating this one out of? Or what are you rating this one? So I always actually think about my rating right after I finish watching the movie. So I can answer you what I would have rated this before talking about it. I would have given it a three. This was a, this was a little bit of a thinker because like as soon as the credits rolled, I had to think about if I like this movie or not. And at the intro of part two, like of this, I talked about how the things that I did like about it, but talking about it even more, I liked it even more after that. Yes, I, I agree. There were definite pacing issues. It was too long of a movie. Some parts, like some characters were dumb, but they worked, you know. I just love the 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 whole recruiting the actor or the host of a vampire killing TV show to kill this vampire and them realizing that vampires yeah. actually do. I just love that so much. So I'm going to give this, my final rating for this is a 3.5 tap water, holy Ooh. water vials out of five. That's awesome. I re- yeah, I, re- I really liked it. It was fun. And would you watch this again, Alex? Would you watch it again? Yeah, maybe. I, I think I-, I would probably watch this again. I-, I I'm definitely interested in the remake, but mm. in terms of this original movie, I, I think I-, I love the music so much that I would probably watch this again, like in the background. Nice. Yeah. Just like while you're doing chores or something? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would too. I think this might be one where I would throw it on if I had access to it. If I had to, you know, buy it off of YouTube every time, no. But if I had the DVD... I might throw it on. What about you, Luke? I I definitely watched the new remake, the modern one. Or mm. I guess it's ten years ago now. Can we even call something ten years ago modern? <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> but again, like I I don't want to throw too much hate on this movie because I actually enjoyed this movie. Really benefits from the fact that I like talking to the two of you <laughs> about these kind of things. <laughs> But I think everything that is really good about this movie, other than maybe the music, is also done better in other films. So I'd rather, if I wanted what this movie could give me, I'd get the fix out of a different movie. Because I think other movies do it better than Fright Night. Not that this one is bad at it, but like I would watch it again if someone specifically came up to me and says, I really want to watch Fright Night, and they were someone I liked. I'd be like, okay, <laughs> I'll bite the bullet and I'll do it. <laughs> All right. But... But if someone came up like... What if it's someone you didn't like? No, no way. Because, <laughs> again, and I have to stick to my guns, I don't think this is that good of a movie. <laughs> I think it's a fun... Fair. It's a funny right. experience that I can relive similarly with other films that I like more than this one. Very fair. Very fair. And, well, with that then, we will go into the ending section of the of the podcast, starting with my favorite section something to cheer section so do we have some cheers this week and who would like to cheer first i'll cheer first all right all right so we are recording this on january 2nd 2021 and you know something i do every year as kind of a a reflection of the year and just because i like doing it is i make a list of my top 25 songs that came out in 20 in the year and i make a list of my top 10 albums that came out in the year so I made my list, it came out, and this was a good, like 2020 was a very good year for music. There was a lot of good music that came out this year, so that's my cheer. Nice. Yeah. Just cheering 2020's music. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. 
I'm going to go second. I am going to cheer a podcast that if you listened to the mini episode that I did with Shannon McDill a couple weeks ago, she referenced a podcast called You're Wrong About, which the two hosts take a story that is sort of people think is well known in history or think they know a lot about it. And then they go and do a really, really deep dive on it and talk about what is true, what has been, uh, you know, sort of fictionalized what what you're wrong about basically what people are wrong about in their their remembrances and it's very delightful the hosts have great listening voice uh, sarah marshall and michael hobbs are the hosts and they have they've done a bunch of different topics i listened to one on the tuskegee syphilis study which was really fascinating i listened to one on the newsboys strike of 1899 it's all sort of a what i've listened to is like america based because they're both american journalists but I really, really think it's a fun podcast. They deal with some heavy shit. Some of the topics are pretty like intense, but there's just this sort of wry, sardonic, languid nature to it that makes it very ple- pleasant to listen to. So my cheer is you're wrong about, and I'm right about that. <laughs> nice. Did they do an episode on vampires? I don't know. I'll have to look. They've been doing it for about five years. So I've just been kind of like picking, mm. uh, you know, just sort of picking and choosing through the back catalog, but... It's good. Maybe it's a good show. they should have called it Forgetting Michael Hobbs because you could never forget Sarah Marshall. <laughs> I guarantee you that woman is sick and tired of hearing that joke since Forgetting Sarah Marshall came out. Yeah, what bad luck, hey? To <laughs> just have the same name as a movie or something. Right. Oh, I won't forget you. Yeah, I heard that joke a million times. <laughs> well, like, okay, Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, I bet you we when you listen back to this episode, Billy, you're gonna have to count the amount of pop culture references we make because this might be the most out of any episode we've done. No, I don't have to do that, <laughs> and I'm not doing that. <laughs> so my something to cheer. I feel like my cheers have been pretty monolithic the last little while, but when you're in lockdown life, I've been watching a lot of movies and the most recent episode we recorded for the other podcasts I do really true fiction as we recorded on the film American Beauty and I hadn't seen that movie in probably five or six years but it's one of my all-time favorite films and it was just such a treat to watch it again with my more grown-up really true fiction eyes looking for the things in it because it's like as you both know i'm like a such a philosophy nerd and specifically an existentialism nerd and that movie is like the most mainstream existential film ever made and i just really really (laughs) loved getting to see the late 90s aesthetic again with such an awesome movie that has so many poignant meditations in it that is ostensibly that's for billy's mom a movie about nothing like nothing happens in that movie but it's still such a powerful film i think and it's also like the irony is not lost on me that <laughs> kevin spacey this kind of piece of shit even if, if not a criminal <laughs> plays a character that his goodness shines through when he sees the vulnerability of a young adult <laughs> Like, there's something so... (laughs) Talk about meta. Like, there's something so weird. But you know what? The character of Lester Burnham is, to me, totally detached from the actor who plays it. And it's such such a powerful Mm -hmm. film 
that if you haven't seen it, definitely watch American Beauty, if for no other reason than to get a snapshot of the zeitgeist of the late 90s in America. And also, if you have seen it, but not for a while, like, I don't know, it's just one of those movies that I'm always, I was nervous to watch because I feel like, oh, I've seen so many things that I loved when I was younger that don't really stand up or don't impact me in a similar way now. But but American right. Beauty did. Like, it, 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 it held its own, even in a more modern context, because I think the themes are timeless. So, yeah, that's my something to cheer is the 1999 film American Beauty. Well... That will pretty much bring us to the end of another episode of Nothing to Fear. And if we, we, we have no iTunes reviews to read out today, but thank you all to, to the people who do listen. And I want to put a little, a little note that I thought about, I hadn't considered before, in terms of the review section. And if, if this is maybe a reason why you haven't left a review, dear listener... I know from very personal experience that changing my name on my Apple ID and so the place where I leave reviews shows up under a name I do not use anymore. So if your Apple ID is still under an old email address with an old name, I know a lot of our listeners are trans or gender diverse and have changed names. And I can tell you from experience that it is easier to change your name with the government of Canada than it is with Apple. So... (laughs) Oh, man. If it's easier to do something with a government agency than a private company, you're fucked. Yeah. So if, you, if you're if you worried about a name, we usually read out the username, but just let us know in your review what name you would like us to read out, and we'll make sure to consider that. So, you know, thank you to everyone who does listen and leave reviews and interact on the Instagram it is really helpful, but leaving us a review and leaving us a five-star rating helps us go up in the charts, helps more people find the show. And if you've done that already, great word of mouth is also a really great way to tell people about the show. If you're, you know, working with people or you're in a Zoom meeting, I know we're still all isolating, but just tell people about us. If you like our show, tell us about it. And yeah, we, we'd love to have more people listen but to everyone who does listen thank you so much for supporting us thank you to the you know every week if you download and listen it helps our numbers on uh, on itunes on all the charts and hopefully we're, we're moving up a little bit and if you would like to support the show in more of a monetary way we have a couple places where you can get your hands on some of our merchandise we do have our t public store and we also have a society six page which sells our merch we sells our designs sells the logo sells the daytime of safety sells some of the ones that katie has designed for the episode specific ones or the monster specific ones if that is something you're after anyway thank you so much support us with buying some merch if you can It really helps us, and we will use that money to make the show better. Thank you, Alex, for writing the the theme song. Thank you, Katie Rogers and Madison, for designing the artwork. And we hope to hear from some of you listeners. You can reach us on our social medias. We have Instagram, Nothing to Fear Podcast at Instagram, Nothing to Fear P1 on Twitter, you can email us, nothing to fear podcast at gmail.com. You can talk to me. I'm over at Billy by Design, I before E when spelling Billy. And there's underscores between the words. And that page is usually me talking about being trans in my life. And I also host a cooking show on there on Mondays called Quarantine Kitchen. 
which is a whole bunch of fun. So come on down if you want. Luke, where can the lovely people find and talk to you and interact with what you well, do? Well, I mean, the lovely people can find the other podcast, Really True Fiction, on all major podcasting platforms or apps. If you listen to episode 62, you'll hear Billy talk to my cousin David and I, who's the co-host. If you listen to episode 71, you'll hear Alex, The Stand, and Harry Potter and Prisoner for Azkaban, respectively, as the stories. And yeah, actually, I would say that for any of the crossover who's also sci-fi nerds, the episode that's coming out tomorrow as we record, so a couple weeks in the past when you hear this, is Dune. And I'm really excited for that because we had David's friend Josiah on, and I don't know, it was like a book I'd never read and they have. And so there was just a lot of great interaction of people who know the book and me first time coming reading it and like thinking about the themes because Dune is awesome. And with the movie coming out later this year, like, mm. yeah, read Dune. If nothing else, forget really true fiction. Just read the book Dune. It is so good. <laughs> but yeah. Just read Dune. And and really true fiction has a Facebook page mm. as well, right? Yeah. Facebook page, which, which you, you can get. like, which will you'll just get more notif- you'll get a notification every time we release an episode, as well as really true fiction at gmail.com if you want to email. But like I hardly get any emails from when I say that on really true fiction. So I'm not like particularly <laughs> worried about getting any from here either. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Send Luke emails. <laughs> Make him rue those words. I'll um, rue them. Alex, would you like to share? <laughs> Alex, would you like to share where we can find you? Or are you just happy to be a podcast host? Uh, you can find me right here every Monday at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Alrighty. Awesome. Well, thank you again, everyone, for listening. Next week, we are going to be finishing off birthday week with Luke's birthday week, and we are going to be watching. What are we going to watch? I Luke, believe it's my us. birthday week year. You know, getting birthday getting our time. Yes. Uh, we're watching the film Hellraiser, which I am actually really excited for because I don't really know anything about it. I think there's something with other dimensions. But I know that Pinhead is one of the creepiest looking horror movie villains I've ever seen. And I think I think yeah. his so- like the fact that he doesn't seem to be someone who really talks adds to his creepiness. Maybe he does. Maybe he's very chatty, but it just never seems that way. So I'm really excited <laughs> for it, actually. He seems like a real prickly character, that Pinhead. <laughs> yeah, so tune in next week for our discussion on Hellraiser and... So I'll say goodbye. Goodbye for me. Goodbye, Luke. Adios. And goodbye, Alex. Peace out. All right. And remember, folks, they're just movies. There's nothing to fear. Also, I have a question. (laughs) This just occurred to me. If you throw a bunch of comfortable shoes onto an elevated pit of fire, is that a Vans pyre? Boo. (laughs) (laughs) sorry okay i actually like that one i like that one when i think about it more (laughs) how dare you (laughs) well i dare you certainly do dare that's no one can take that away from you luke